0: Lost in the Movies. This episode doubles as an episode of Left of the Movies, which is a kind of trial run of a podcast that I'll be debuting for the most part in 2021. But every few months this year and early next year, I'm going to be releasing an episode that ties into this theme of uh, talking about films from a particularly left wing political standpoint. Sometimes these films are very explicitly uh, political, sometimes Less so, but I'm finding interesting things. Sometimes they kind of come from the left. Sometimes they come from the right. I'd argue some of the films I'm discussing today come from both ends of that spectrum. So the films under discussion are Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Irishman, Joker, and Parasite. Four films that came out in 2019 and all feature interclass violence in their climaxes. And that's what I'm going to focus on largely here. These were recorded as capsules for a patron podcast earlier in the year, so I recorded these back in January. Obviously, a lot has happened since then that could be of interest to these films. I'll discuss that a little bit after I just play the original thoughts for the most part. One thing that I want to mention uh, going in is all of these films will be discussed with spoilers. I mean, as I said, I'm talking about the climax of these films, so it's kind of hard to avoid in that sense. Before we get started, some housekeeping. Just wanted to mention that my monthly patron podcast has gone up. It's covering Belladonna of Sadness, the early 70s anime film, very psychedelic and strange and explicit. And I relate that to Twin Peaks as part of my Twin Peaks cinema series, as well as just discussing it uh, in itself. And on that same podcast, I read an archive review that I wrote of uh, The Devil's Bride a few years ago and also. Twin Peaks reflections on the characters of Vivian Ernie Norma, the locations of the Red Diamond City Motel, and the golf course, and the storyline of M.T. Wentz relating it to the Mark Frost book, The Final Dossier. So all of that packed into that one big, long patron podcast this month. For $5 a month, patrons, I released the Lost in Twin Peaks coverage of episode 21, and for $1 a month, patrons, I opened up my uh, episode 15 coverage of Twin Peaks. So that's the one right after the killer's reveal. If you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. On my site, I put up a post-election status update, mostly just talking about the work I'd fallen behind on, how I was going to uh, approach it. I'm still looking forward to creating some more Journey Through Twin Peaks video essays in the coming months and year, and one in particular probably the next few weeks uh, about Mark Frost, so keep an eye out for that. And I also improved the image quality across all the pages on my site. So all the directories and uh, archive pages and places like that where you can go and browse uh, posters and click on them and it'll take you to whatever review or video essay or podcast I uh, have offered on that particular film. So now when you look at that on your phone, you're going to get much nicer, crisper images if you like that sort of thing. So that's what I've been up to elsewhere. Now for this episode, let's get started on these four films. All I have... Negative thoughts. And finally, in a world where everyone thinks they can do my job, I heard you paint houses. No, please. No, no, please. Yes, I do, sir. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Once upon a time in Hollywood, the Irishman, Joker, and Parasite all touch on issues of class, and they have uh, climactic violence that's very much tied into their visions of class society. And I'm going to cover them in the order from, you know, how indirect to direct they are uh, in terms of, you know, those themes being foregrounded, but also uh, I think Roughly, ideologically, from right to left, I think you could argue, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has the more conservative view of this kind of class violence, and uh, Parasite has the more openly left-wing or radical take on this type of class violence, with the Irishman and Joker in between. Maybe argue that. Joker might even be more so than Parasite, but I think with Joker, at least with the main character, it's a little more buried his his perception of this so in that case uh you know that's arguable (laughs) But we'll discuss that in relation to each film i'd also note you know these are film capsules and i want to keep them that way for this so i've actually stopped and started re-recording a couple times because i found myself going on a little too long these are films i may very well come back to and uh discuss as a film in focus particularly if people have things to say if you write in with feedback that could be a springboard to a whole other discussion which would be great um, these were all really fascinating films, so the only reason I'm keeping them down to film capsules is just because there's so many, and there's so much other stuff I want to cover in this episode. I think it's good to kind of keep a, a, a audio journal of what I've been watching, um, but expansion will have to come later. So let's start with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick Stutt, Double Cliff Booth. <laughs> So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. <laughs> Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. This was Quentin Tarantino's latest film. It's about the summer of the Manson murders. And, uh, well, really, it's about the year of the Manson murders, because so much of it takes place in February or March. And then they jump ahead six months to the Manson killing on August 8th, 1969. And it uses that as a backdrop, an ominous feeling. There's a scene where a character picks up a runaway girl who's hitchhiking and takes her back to the Manson ranch and goes to see uh, this old man played by Bruce Turn. Great scene. There's this feeling of dread to it. But of course, this is a Tarantino film. And he pulls a twist at the end where they... uh, The characters, the Manson family characters who are coming to kill Sharon Tate, end up getting distracted by the Leonardo DiCaprio character who is yelling at them, get off my property, drinking a margarita in a southern accent. So they decide to go after him instead. And uh, they end up getting killed by uh, the Brad Pitt character who's Lino's... Uh, bodyguard, basically, all-purpose. He's his friend. They call him a more than a brother and less than a wife. You know, he's his all-around right-hand man. He's a stunt man for the DiCaprio character, who is a cowboy actor that's starting to become kind of washed up, alcoholic. And Brad Pitt drives him around, keeps him, keeps him uh, company, but has some dirty laundry of his own. People think he may have killed his wife. He's got a long fuse, but when the fuse finally runs, he will. Uh, lash out. He gets in a fight with a Bruce with Bruce Lee at one point in the film, which Bruce Lee's family did not take kindly to. I'll I'll link the article about that below. But they thought that was defaming their legacy. It's based loosely on something that happened, but very exaggerated and presented in a not flattering light for Bruce Lee. But anyways, so these two characters are spending their last night together. The Leo characters just gotten married after going off to do spaghetti westerns. They end up. Killing the whole all the whole Manson crew. And then uh, Rick Dalton, the Leonardo DiCaprio character, ends up getting called up to Sharon Tate's house and gets to meet her. And now it's like, oh, maybe his career will take off as well. So it's good results all around. Sharon Tate is played, of course, by Margot Roby. We follow her throughout the film as well. They're kind of, those three characters are three main focal points. It's a pretty sprawling ensemble, but they're the main anchors for our view. And so it's interesting to look at this film, on the one hand, you know everybody hates the Manson family and Charles Manson and what they did and It's very satisfying cathartic to see them butchered the way that they butchered others. but it's interesting how Tarantino chooses to represent this, where it's this explicitly conservative call to you know, property on behalf of this old cowboy actor or aging cow- cowboy actor who steps in and, and him and his very stoic bodyguard fight these hippies. And they call them hippies all the time. And this denigrating, oh, those hippies, those fucking... And it's almost a celebration of the silent generation or, you know, in some cases, maybe the greatest generation. I'm not sure how old some of these characters are. The Brad Pitt one may be a World War II vet. But celebrating this older generation and their version of the 60s. And I stumbled across A.O. Scott's review... Uh, just minutes before preparing this. I was actually, I mean, I was a mix of uh, thrilled because it's just fantastically written, but a little disappointed because he basically made all the points that I was thinking, I guess, were not perhaps that original then. I wanted to read some of what he said as kind of a way to tie up this little capsule and then move on to the next films that I think have a similar theme and structure in some ways. He says of these uh, two characters... Uh, Rick and Cliff, Rick played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Cliff by Brad Pitt. Cliff is a gentleman's gentleman, a man Friday, a dog's body, a squire. Their relationship isn't defined by money or sex, but by a difference in rank accepted without comment or complaint by both parties. The inequality between the men, Rick lives in a spacious ranch house up in the hills, Cliff in a cluttered trailer down in the valley, is what dignifies their bond, just as the contrast of their temperaments sustain it. He goes on to talk about Joan Didion describing Hollywood of that era as the last extant stable society. And says that it's a fundamental. He says, A.O. Scott, that it's a fundamentally aristocratic social order. People know their place. They respect the rules and hierarchies. Rick's neighbors, Sharon Tate and her husband Roman Polanski, live higher up in the canyon at the end of a gated driveway, and also on the status pyramid. They are regarded not with envy or resentment, but with awe. And I was very much struck by this in this film as well. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to see him articulated here because I think it's really key to the film's kind of romanticism that it has. And what he desc- he says, Tarantino's sense, of the movie's past is often described as nostalgic. He tends to be seen by admirers and critics alike as a film geek, a fanboy, a fanatic cinephile with an encyclopedic command in archaic styles and genres. But once upon a time in Hollywood shows that he does, he deserves a loftier, possibly more contentious label. It's the expression of a sensibility that is profoundly and passionately conservative. Alongside the knight and his squire, there is a princess, Tate, who lives in something like a castle and is married to a man who looks a little like a frog. Tarantino has never been much interested in sex or romance. Violence and vengeance are what makes his stories run, but he he has a sentimental investment in marriage and a thing about wives. So I just thought that was quite interesting, and I agree, and I think the last bit that I wanted to read is this gets to the heart of, I think, what is the sort of generational era project of this film he says but what if the 60s never ended or rather what if the 60s as a half century of pop culture habit has taught us to remember them never really happened now you could see why this is an appealing uh, review to me with my work on The Big Chill and Return of the Secaucus 7 and defining these different eras and everything like that. A.O. Scott says, The political struggles of the decade are deep in the background, occasionally crackling through car radio static along with traffic and weather reports. The music we hear isn't a soundtrack of rebellion but an anthology of pleasure. Tarantino's anti-ironic celebration of the mainstream popular culture of the time amounts to a sustained argument against the idea of a counterculture. Those who would disrupt, challenge, or destroy the last stable society on Earth are in the grip of an ideological, aesthetic, and moral error. Hippies aren't cool. Old-time he-men like Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are cool. So that's just brilliant. That's a perfect articulation of what I I wanted to say about this film, so I'll let him say it. Look at Tarantino. He is, I would say, people might say he's the youngest of the boomers. I would say he's maybe the oldest of the Xers. I think he was born in 1963. So he was about six at the time of this movie. He can remember this era. And he has always just sort of romanticized this pre-60s, vision of cool, all that it entails. And I think it does entail this class element. You have these people living out in this kind of ranch. They're often runaways. They have no order to their lives. They're just laying about. They don't have a hierarchy to cling to. And it leads them to this violence against, you know, basically in the vision of the film, they're betters, so to speak. So, you know, on the face of it, when we're dealing with the Manson family and these kind of likable characters, you kind of uh, applaud film's project but it's interesting to see in contrast with these other movies they have a little bit of a different take on somewhat similar social dynamics so let's move on to the second of these the Irishman hi my friend I got that kid I was talking to you about here I'm gonna put him on the phone let you talk to him okay hello is that Frank yes hiya Frank this is Jimmy Hoffa glad to meet you glad to meet you too even if it's over the phone Our friend speaks very highly of you. Thank you. Only three people in the world have one of these. And only one of them is Irish. This was Martin Scorsese's big film, another big, nearly three-hour film, looking back on post-war America and these masculine figures and their roles within these structures, in this case the Mafia and the Teamsters Union and how that defined who they were, how that how they struggled with it. The film stars Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and Joe Pesci. Uh, Pacino's playing Jimmy Hoffa, and uh, the De Niro's playing the title character, the hitman who went on to become bodyguard and confidant of Jimmy Hoffa, and uh, later claimed that he was the one to kill him uh Jimmy Hoffa infamously disappeared in the mid 70s presumed killed by the mafia for challenging their role in the Teamsters Union and uh this character Frank Sheeran says that uh, you know he was the one who did it and also that he killed um a mafioso in New York who was sort of an infamous uh figure crazy Joe Gallo that he was the one to kill him as well and Joe Pesci plays Russell Buff- Buffalon- Buffalino. I can't remember how it's pronounced um, it's funny, though, as I'm looking at the cast list as a refresher, uh, Ray Romano, who is, like, the Teamsters' lawyer, Bill bofilano I, reali- I didn't remember in the movie that those characters were related. Obviously, they've got the same last name. Totally, like, uh, slipped my mind there. Really enjoyed this movie. It's a very meat-and-potato Scorsese, which sounds like a ridiculously obvious thing to say. I mean, it's called The Irishman, as other films are about Italian mobsters. Well, other than uh, The Departed, I suppose. But nonetheless, I, I think even just beyond that obvious, obvious ethnic aspect, this is a film where it's it's just not the same kind of romantic, glitzy, glamorous view of the mob life that you get with Goodfellas or Casino or any of the other movies, where they've got their highs and lows, but they live life kind of exuberantly. This is a little more buttoned up. They're very focused on work issues. I mean, the, their main battleground, their main... Contestation happens over a union, over a labor union where they're working stiffs. And so, what I found interesting about this film to discuss in this context, because again, this is something I may come back and do a full treatment of, but in terms of class and violence, is this idea of Frank Sheeran as operating in the space between Jimmy Hoff and the Joe Pesci character, uh, where the Joe Pesci character is a mafioso. He has a conventional View of authority and hierarchy and top down. You respect me, I respect you, but you know your place in this. And he's very laid. I love how laid back and contained and calm Joe Pesci is in this movie. It's actually quite funny in the context of his career. Scorsese casting him as this guy who just stands there while like Al Pacino shouted him, and he's just like Jimmy, Jimmy, come on, Jimmy, Jimmy, it's all right, calm down. But you know, still a very threatening figure because he has this power that he is willing to use and frequently does uh, throughout the film. And so you have Frank, where he grows closer and closer to Jimmy as the film goes on, to Hoffa. And by the end of the film, he's trying to make peace here because Jimmy will not listen to Pesci and the others who are telling him to make peace with the people and the teamsters he doesn't like. And it becomes this power struggle because he views it as his union. Yeah, you might want to get something out of it, but you know this is my union, I built this up from scratch. And the film has been um, criticized for being not necessarily anti-union, but presenting like a corrupt union, like, hey, how can we finally get a film about unions? A major film, big Netflix release by a major director, and it's about like a notoriously corrupt union. But I think in the terms of the film, Hoffa is seen as a fairly honorable character. The union's corruption is taken in stride as the cost of doing business. But where he does draw the line is this idea that uh, these these outsiders are going to be telling him how to operate what's supposed to be a working man's association, which he sees as a vehicle of class struggle. He talks about that continuously throughout the movie. Very explicit class warfare. And it's funny that it's directed against a Democrat because he despises John F. Kennedy. You know, he hates the Kennedys, sees them as these silver spoon elitist aristocrats. The mafiosos are much more happy with the Kennedys, think that they can control them. And Cuba plays into all this and all that. The relevance here is that eventually Frank is forced kill Jimmy Hoffa, and he does. Whether or not this really happened, that's what happens in the film. And I just find it so fascinating because he was a teamster before he was mobbed up, but he was mobbed up and knew Russell before he met Jimmy Hoffa and became friends with him. So there's this contesting loyalty going throughout the film. It actually impacts his relationship with his daughter, who loves Jimmy and doesn't like Russell. And I think in a weird way, it's using this mafia structure that we're so used to from Scorsese films. It subverts some of the romance of it in a way where we're seeing to what extent the mafia represents not this outlaw rebel mentality. And, and we're actually seeing to what extent it's a force of hierarchy and uh, class oppression where this this colorful eccentric character Uh, For all of his questionable attributes, Jimmy Hoffa, he does, in this film, represent the working class and an idea of working class independence and power, particularly. You know, whatever terms it's on, this is worker power. This represents actual power that frightens the bosses. And in the end, what are the mafiosos? They're bosses. And Frank is that worker who, at the end of the day, as, as... honored as he might be to be, you know, he's he's given this great award at a Teamsters ceremony, and as honored as he, as he may be to be in this, this union struggle, at the end of the day, he knows who his bosses are, and he knows he serves them. And so in a weird way, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but I feel like the Irishman kind of represents this whole post-war period where unions were strong, and then they ultimately fell, because at the end of the day, they weren't actually running the show. They were getting leeway, but it was leeway... You know, the, the their power was contingent on the bosses ultimately having greater power. And I think that's what undid a lot of unions through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So there you have it. You know, that's my <laughs> a loose labor reading of the Irishman. Here you have a working man basically forced to take out another working man on behest, on behest of the bosses. So moving on from that, another, uh, you know, we had Pacino in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and also in the irishman and we have de niro in the irishman and in joker you please stop bothering my kid sorry Arthur. i have some bad news for you <laughs> this is the last time we'll be meeting you don't listen to do you you just ask the same questions every week How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? Joker, obviously, was the DC film, came out last year, origin story of one of the great comic book villains of all time. When this was first whispered about and advertised, I thought, this looks so stupid, like, I don't care, why are we having another Joker movie? And the main reason I was looking at it that way was because three years ago, suicide squad came out and there was all this hype around jared leto like you won't believe his joker it's so edgy and everyone was kind of rolling their eyes and sure enough the movie was ridiculous it was not a memorable performance barely even part of the movie it was just all this dumb artificial astroturfed hype and it was like you know come on we had we we had heath ledger as the joker 10 years ago now you're trying to like redo it. It just felt like another example of this Spider-Man rebooting every five years. Like, come on. So then within three years, they're now doing Joaquin Phoenix as like the real artsy Joker. And I'm just like, give me a break. This is so dumb. And it became a meme among a lot of people online because of that in the months leading up to its release, because it was just stop it with this stupid, grim, dark, phony, edgy comic book stuff. Give me a break. Now, uh, by the time it came out, the narrative changed completely. Now it was actually being viewed as this serious... A threat to public safety where uh, it was just assumed that this was like a portrait of incels, that this guy, this character in this movie was uh, somebody that people were going to come to the theater dressed as an open fire on the audience. And it was very ridiculous and over the top. You had the military issuing guidelines to how to react at a Joker shooting. And the media was whipping up this firestorm. And I thought that was really stupid as well. Like To me, I made the equation. I said, Joker is to cultural discourse what Russiagate is to political discourse, just this really overinflated, uh, exaggerated phenomenon that doesn't uh, mean nearly as much as people are trying to make it out to mean. Now, uh, then a third thing happened, which was the film came out, and there was a backlash to the backlash where people said, no, actually, this film's quite good. It's it's actually a kind of a left-wing class critique. It's using the comic book form to criticize not just the early 80s New York that it seems to take place in, in tribute to Scorsese films like King of Comedy and Taxi Driver and so forth, quite explicit references to those films in this movie, but also our current era of neoliberalism and austerity. And looking at how this character, Arthur Fleck, who's a kind of itinerant, um, unemployed, Party clown who has mental illness, he laughs, can't stop himself from laughing even when he's upset, and he ultimately becomes violent. He kills a bunch of stockbrokers on the subway, and it sets off this firestorm of protests. Everybody in the city is now putting on masks and going out and rioting. And so at the end of the film, of course, here again, with another film climaxing with violence against perceived class enemies on behalf of class enemies in the case of The Irishman, in which he kills the TV show host played by De Niro. So De Niro shoots someone in the head in one film, and the next film he's shot in the head with blood splattering all over the walls. By the end of the film, now he's being celebrated as this icon by all these uh I, with this kind of change in reputation, I was much more intrigued now to see the film. All these podcasters were recording things about it, so finally got the chance to see it, and I liked it quite a bit, and I would say you can look at it through two lenses, uh, sort of, or two sides of a a kaleidoscope or telescope or whatever you want to say. If you look at it through one end, It is a uh, comic book movie that's putting on pretensions of being a Scorsese film and can't quite live up to them. I know my cousin pointed out, and I think this was a fair observation, something like, um, you know, there's a character in it, there's a, a woman, a neighbor who he falls in love with, and you see all these fantasies of him with her. She's comforting him when his mother's sick and all these other things, but uh, then you find out it was all a fantasy. And they present it in the film as if it's real, and then they reveal it's a fantasy. They show a flashback of him with her in all those situations, and then they cut to the same scene, but she's not in it. And he pointed out, like, this is kind of an obvious tactic. Like, if it was really a Scorsese film, they would be much more ambiguous, or just any type of sort of serious drama. They'd be much more ambiguous about something like that. So it's a little on the nose. at can feel a little bit like an amateur hour version of a serious uh, psychodrama or whatever, which I think is fair enough. But if you look at it through the other end of that telescope as basically a superhero movie or, or a comic book movie first and foremost, not a um, film that's primary ambition is to have pretensions at something else, uh, it becomes more interesting, I think, because you're seeing this, this superhero genre turned on its head and... This idea of who we romanticize in this story, who the villains are, who the heroes are, be much more compelling. So Thomas Wayne, Bruce Wayne's father, is the villain of this piece, no question about it. He's this arrogant industrialist type figure, wealthy billionaire who's running for mayor and looks down on the underclass of the city. And we're very much encouraged to sympathize with Arthur. And I thought it was interesting too that they don't have the Joker character kill Batman's parents at the end of the film. Um, It's an interesting twist in that I was expecting that to happen throughout the entire film, depending which mythology you focus some Some of the origin stories don't have the Joker doing it, but obviously the Tim Burton film did. And I thought it was interesting. They didn't go there. They almost didn't have to. It's like, no, he unleashed these forces that did it. It's less about the personal animosity Between these characters and more just about the social dynamics there. So Arthur remains somewhat apolitical throughout the whole film. I think by the end he understands that he has a political role for a moment. Then he's off, packed off to Arkham Asylum. But just seeing all these familiar iconography Arkham Asylum, speaking of that, uh, Joker, Gotham City, translated into fairly close to real world terms, I thought was an interesting reflection back on that comic book mythology in some way. And it's what I had originally wanted from uh, Batman Begins. When that came out 15 years ago, I thought, oh, cool. They're going to do, you know, we've had our Batman movies. That's kind of been done. We had all the Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher and all of that. And now it would be cool to have like a a realistic, quote-unquote, Batman film takes place in the real world. That would be kind of cool. And then I saw Batman Begins, and it was like freezing a subway with some germ, and this guy going off to the train with what's-his-face, the Liam Neeson character. I just thought, this isn't at all what I was hoping for, for better or worse. It It was not an actual plunking down of a comic book mythos into the real world. But this film was. So in a way, I finally got what I was looking for 15 years later from that. Okay, and finally, Parasite. This is definitely um, probably the most acclaimed of these four. This film is by Bon Joong-ho, the uh, Korean director who made the film Snowpiercer, probably one of his most popular ones. I hadn't seen a film of his since The Host, which I was shocked to see was way back in 2006. I think you know, the last 15 years of film history are just sort of a blur to me a little bit. Um, so yeah, i had not up on his uh, recent filmography, although it, it's highly acclaimed. But this was something I finally had to catch up with. It was quite the sensation last year. I was listening to a podcast just today by the Antifada where they had Leslie Lee on from a struggle session talking about how a lot of people like wealthy people who the film is ostensibly aimed at in a way or aimed at you know criticizing really like the film even though they don't like something like Joker and kind of parsing why that might be but this is definitely one of those films uh, like Get Out in a way that took off even with people that might have seen themselves as, as the target of its critique but the film is about two families, the Kims and the Parks. It's a sort of a complex plot that I just spent like five minutes describing and deleted and uh, I'm going to try to just summarize much more quickly because this is just a capsule review. But basically the Kims, one by one, go to work for the Parks. Uh, the Kims live in a basement dwelling. They can't find employment. They are talented and bright, but just have no prospects whatsoever, just mired in poverty, whereas the the Park family lives in this beautifully designed home. They're described as naive because they just take the ease of life for granted. And so one by one, the Kims force out the people who are there already. The housekeeper and the driver are uh, set up to be fired, so they're not like these, you know, this isn't just a story of like noble class warfare where these wily proletarians are able to take advantage of the uh, the inordinately wealthy. They're also undercutting fellow workers. And that comes back to bite them because the former housekeeper has been keeping her husband in the basement of this place to hide him from debtors. And so there's a fight that breaks out. There's violence between those two groups. At the end, the husband, after his wife is killed, the husband of the former housekeeper races out and starts stabbing the Kim family at a Park family party. But the key moment of the film is at the very end when in the midst of the husband of the former, of the former housekeeper stabbing his whole family, uh, Mr. Kim, instead of continuing to go after him, stabs Mr. Park instead, stabs the rich man and kills him and then disappear, walk, runs off and disappears. And as it turns out, he ended up hiding in the basement there, takes the other man's role. And in a weird way, it's like the one act, uh, I don't even know, it's a stretch to even call it this, but it's almost like the one act of solidarity in the movie, which is a movie all about workers, for the most part, screwing over other workers for their own advantage. So in a way, there's a little bit of a reflection of the Irishman in here. The workers set out against each other in the service of the bosses in this case they're doing it of their own accord they're not being forced to do it this is how they understand they have to get ahead in the world and only in that last moment it's as if the irishman ended with frank trying to shoot jimmy and failing or something and then somehow turning his gun on on joe pesci (laughs) Uh, so I thought that was really compelling. And so then I guess to kind of look at all four of these films in that sense, it's also kind of the opposite of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where you have this house up on the hill and you have this lower order defending that house against the the rabble below and earning its way up by doing so. And in this, you have uh, kind of the reverse in the sense that at least in the final moment, it's understood, oh no, we're the rabble as well, and our real enemy, the one who is, at the very least, is benefiting and maintaining this position. If not, you know, the film doesn't get into capital accumulation and things like that, so it's not really talking about how uh, the Parks might be responsible for the, directly responsible for the particular situation that the Kims and the former housekeeper and her husband find themselves in, but they're part of that class. Ultimately, the title is somewhat ironic. We're initially thinking of the Kims as the parasites because they're attaching themselves one by one to this Park family and feeding off of them. But really, in a sense, it's the Parks who are who are parasitical towards them. And what really does it at the end is the fact that Mr. Park is reaching out for the key, screaming, give me the key, give me the key, to Mr. Kim. He's trying to take his son off. His son has just fainted, like nothing that serious has happened. Meanwhile, Kim's whole family is lying dead or injured around him. And so this guy's so indifferent to that And then he makes a motion of like holding his nose as Mr. Kim throws him the key because he's been commenting throughout the film about how they smell kind of funny. And that's just the last straw. That that lack of respect is that lack of dignity in the end that does it more than the material, uh, the direct material exploitation or, you know, the other factors, just this this inability to even look at them as sharing the same humanity that that pushes them over the edge. And that's something Arthur Fleck speaks about explicitly in Joker when he goes on the show with the De Niro character, the TV host, and says, can't even treat us with a little dignity or respect or humanity or just something to mock for you. And then he ends up shooting that character on air. And so I think that's the theme or the mentality that links these films in some way, this idea of these different positions within a hierarchy and how that functions and whether or not that's good or bad. So to close out, now that we're back in the present that I'm uh, recording this, all of that was recorded only 11 months ago, and yet so much has happened since then. The primaries in which Bernie Sanders lost to Joe Biden, the, uh, the coronavirus epidemic, of course, all year, the Black Lives Matter protests to fund the police movement, the uh, clashes and the riots that broke out in different cities, the confrontations between left and right factions in the street, and also, of course, the election with Donald Trump uh, somewhat narrowly losing to Joe Biden. I mean, he in the popular vote, he obviously went down pretty hard. In the Electoral College, it was closer, but not quite as close as last time, and then In at least I don't think it was. Certainly Trump came out worse than he did last time. But in the states where it made a difference, the margins were often very slim. And so I want to start with that because I think one of the narrative kind of takeaways that people were talking about after this election was this idea that Trump had won more working class voters than he did last time. And I'm not sure yet if there's actually real concrete numbers on that, because some of that was being taken from the fact that He was improving his margins with Latinos and black voters. So there was kind of an assumption that this was working class uh, groups within those demographics. But I mean, really, I think I've, I've actually seen results that seem to indicate, no, he was winning upper income members of those groups, of those minority groups. So in fact, he actually lost some margins of white working class men in the Midwest who went to him. So I bring all that up. I think particularly thinking of, I would say, the Irishman out of these films and what I talked about there of how it depicts uh, people who take great pride in their work, great pride in their union, and yet at the end of the day, I shouldn't say people, it's one one person in this film, but at the end of the day, what does he do? He actually betrays the union leader for the mafia. And uh, it's hard not to think of that when thinking of this appeal that Trump has for many voters now. Uh, drawing comparisons between Jimmy Hoffa and the the Democratic Party may seem unflattering to the Democratic Party. I would say it's actually probably a little bit unflattering to Jimmy Hoffa. At any rate, I think the analogy between Trump and uh, the mafia in that film is a little more uh, accurate in the sense that Trump seems to command this kind of loyalty. There is an appeal that he has to people that I've seen, that I've heard them talk about, where it's like, well, he's protector. He's the strong man. And you kind of want to be on his side. And that to me feels that to me resonates the most with with this film in that sense. And actually, it's worth noting when you really think about it, the way a lot of Trump supporters describe him and see him and defend him is actually as a sort of Jimmy Hoffa figure, as this flawed, maybe corrupt individual who nonetheless stands up for the little guy and doesn't, you know, can't, can't keep his mouth shut enough that he even gets in trouble with the authorities who he's supposed to be working with. And the, you know, so in this version of the story, the parallel would be, oh, the mafia is like the deep state or whatever. And Trump's like Hoffa, which again, I think misses the fact of the real material gains that Teamsters made, uh, you know, under Hoffa and, and it's, you know, during the, sort of heyday of the union's rise in the 40s and 50s versus Trump really delivering absolutely nothing for anybody who thought that uh, they were the teamsters to his Hoffa. I mean, I, I, honestly, like I had to bring it up just because it occurred to me, actually after I recorded the rest, that really a lot of people, and and not just uh, conservatives too, I would say, I think a lot of liberals would make the comparison between Hoffa and Trump on that sort of superficial egotistical kind of dirty uh, analogy of like this this figure from the 50s through the 70s, you know, I guess preceding Trump, but sort of a proto-Trump type figure, populist demagogue who is uh, maintaining control and power for himself and doesn't know how to uh, work within the system or whatever. So I can actually see that case being made from a flattering and unflattering angle, but really, I think the more compelling uh, aspect is just the right, more broadly, and its hold it has on many viewers who don't, many voters, sorry, who don't really materially benefit from from it, but feel like they have a place within that hierarchy and they have to endorse it. So that's what I take away from that. With the coronavirus and uh, something I didn't even mention in my list of all the things that have happened this year, but the economic crash that's happened in sync with it, I think the film that really comes to mind uh, is Parasite. This depiction of inequality where you have one group feeling they can only get ahead by kind of pushing down the other group and you've seen it or I guess uh, one group's ascent is accompanied by, even if it's not necessarily contingent upon the other's uh, repression. And you see that with the servants that get replaced, and then they find out they live in the basement and all of that. And it strikes me talking about this. So, you know, the relation I'm making there, obviously, is to what they're calling the K-shaped recovery in the U.S., where certain sectors of the economy are going way, way up, particularly the wealthier, but also certain service sectors that Um, you know, their, their jobs are particularly tied to that wealth in one way or another. And then other sectors are going way down where people are losing their jobs. If they're getting jobs again, they're often worse jobs. And the relief has been all geared really heavily towards the top with that big, you know, the big stock market relief, the Fed payments in the spring, and then just totally laggard unemployment. Continued stimulus checks not arriving and all that, so you you see that split there. Now the interesting thing, talking about this and thinking about Parasite, thinking about The Irishman, uh, thinking about these films, is I described them as being about interclass violence, at least in their climaxes, where you have the working class or or poor characters uh, striking out against the wealthier, or kind of the reverse little tricky to define it that way, but kind of the reverse in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But really, all these films are also quite a bit about intra-class violence, like violence between members of the working class who are set into competition with one another uh, up until that end. I think the endings may be... Uh, even if you want to keep going with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, this. The, there's... The Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio characters are supposedly coming apart in the end uh that's they they're about to kind of part ways because he's getting married and there just isn't a place for the this kind of sidekick uh in his life anymore and then this violent act at the end changes it where they come together to fight these these kind of rascals trying to rise up and uh, and you know kill them literally so. It's interesting to think even in that film, you have these kind of cleavages emerging between people's solidarity in that case, maybe more of like a sort of upper middle class solidarity below the top tier. But certainly Parasite, certainly The Irishman, and Joker as well. I mean, the film in a way reverts back to that in the end, where you have uh, the Arthur character seeming like he's about to kill a social worker when earlier in the film he connected very closely with a social worker, and that was actually one of the moments in the film where you really saw this little spark of an idea of all of these different, discreetly oppressed or exploited people maybe realizing they have something in common. So all of these films have that kernel. None of them, I think, in the end, when there are those violent outbursts, totally discover a solidarity. It's more the individual or the small group directing their rage at that oppressor, but they're not really finding that common ground between them. And certainly that resonates in a year where, again, there was this idea early in the spring, early in the winter, really, of, with Bernie Sanders, a left-wing campaign that could join different forces together and kind of try to bring them closer and and, uh, try to take power together. And obviously it didn't happen that way. There's a lot more that could be said about all of this um, certainly I want to end on with the protests this year I think the the film that kind of connects to that the most of the ones we've discussed is obviously Joker with the 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 kind of the protests at the end that turn into riots and it's ironic in a way that Joker this film that was seen as totally about a very distinctly white rage is the one that in some ways predicted or anticipated the outpouring of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, where it was police killing of of black individuals that brought people out onto the streets protesting and making demands and kind of upsetting the authorities. And you can see the backlash to that now in this moment that I'm recording this, where a lot of Democratic politicians are saying they lost because of the defund the police slogan and pushing back in that sense. So It's interesting to look at all of these outcomes and still ongoing situations this year in light of these films, none of which I think it's becoming clearer to me talking about them at this point, none of which really offer any sort of concrete solution or way out or particular hope. They express a certain rage or despair or frustration. I think the only one that does have that optimistic ending is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which again is the one where it's a kind of a conservative class violence that you see so that tells you something as well i would love to hear what other people think of all this i know i'm moving on to now other films in the next few weeks but i'll share your feedback on these films or any others that i've talked about so far if you write to me you can reach me at movie man at uh movie man 0283 at gmail or via twitter at lost in the movies or comments on these podcasts or on my site lost in the movies.com however you want to do it Check out the links in the show notes. There's a lot to dig into there. And thank you for listening. And before I play the preview for the next episode, I should note that I actually went back into this episode and re-edited it. So if you're hearing this, this is different from how it was originally recorded. I had announced a different film, an Ethan Hawke film, to conclude that retrospective. But I decided to go with a Twin Peaks Cinema episode instead on a film by Mark Frost. So here is a preview of that which will be coming on uh, the first Thursday, or the first Wednesday, rather, in December. A candidate's private moment can quickly become public record. I want the tape. The candidate, the seduction, the murder. It all happens in Storyville.